When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We had a delusional sense of self-confidence, but we also were very focused on making our clients and students happy and focusing on putting out good shows. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today, we're talking with, well, my friend Gabriel Mizrahi. He's actually gonna flip the script and interview me a little bit. I wasn't even sure that was gonna happen, but that's the way it ended up. There's a lot you can learn here. It's uh, kind of a mishmash, but I do try to stay focused on practical techniques and mindsets that you can use and apply. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys think of this show. It was really fun for me to record this. Very rarely am I on the other end with somebody who knows me so well. Glad to have you with us here today at AOC. Enjoy this episode with myself and Gabriel Mizrahi. And by the way, if you're new to the show, I'd love to send you some top episodes, interviews, etc., as well as the Art of Charm Toolbox. That's where we discuss concepts like reading body language and nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking, influence, persuasion tactics, and even mentorship, basically everything that we teach here at The Art of Charm. If you're in the States, you can text CHARMED, the text the word CHARM to the number 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. And of course, you can always go to theartofcharm.com as well. And also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. That's where you'll find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, here we go. Hey, I'm here with Gabriel Mizrahi, friend of the show and television writer. Hey, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Are you a film or a television writer? I guess I should straighten that out. Both now, but mostly film these days. Yeah. Got it. And you transition from working at a corporation. I transitioned from working at a corporation. And I, I think this topic ended up being important by accident. It wasn't something we had planned on recording. However, we get a lot of email with questions like, well, how do I know what to do with my life? How do I know whether or not my side gig is working? Is it worthwhile? Is it something I should keep pursuing? Should I quit my job to do this full time? And so I thought that two people who have made the transition would be a good place to start. And most recently, you've been getting a lot of emails from what I can tell from people saying, I've pursued that thing that I really love, but you know, it's been a year, a year and a half. Like, how do I know if it's worth pursuing? Should I stick with it? Exactly. I'm struggling. When do I give up on my dream? Which must be one of the hardest questions to answer for yourself and, uh, you know, hard for you yeah. to answer for somebody else. But you and I both did that at some point. I would love for you just before we get started to like take us back. Can you take us back for a second to where you were when you left your job on Wall Street? There was like that period when you left that job and then you were about to start The Art of Charm. Which was a huge risk. Like right. that must have been a big... It was. I mean, in so many ways, emotionally, professionally, financially, like you were completely changing gears and reinventing yourself. So take us back there. Like what were you thinking and what were you going through when you made that decision? 
Well, first of all, I need to take it back even further because when I went to law school, I kind of went thinking, I'm not really sure why I'm here, but it's better than getting a crappy job that I really don't want. Like my other opportunity was at Best Buy. I was like just retail side Best Wait, Buy. So literally it was like either the blue shirt or law school? Yeah, because I had applied to a bunch of jobs and the places that were hiring. And, and bear in mind, I had a four-year college degree from the University of Michigan and I had good grades. So the places that were hiring I knew three languages at this point. I'd lived in a bunch of places. I had studied languages, commerce, and business, and stuff like that. So I wasn't like an English lit major who didn't have anywhere to go. I was technically at least qualified for some kind of entry-level position, but there was no job counseling. It was just kind of like, go out there and apply, which is terrible advice. And so I went to law school because it was like, well, I can continue to delay the real world and do this. This is not hard. Grad school for you was kind of a place for a smarty to hang out and learn a, a certain set of skills and yeah. you know, the analytical thinking and all that. I mean, you're a smart dude, so it makes sense that you went to law school, but you didn't end up being a lawyer. No. Well, I did for a minute. But what happened was I chose law school because the reasons that most people choose law school that are really bad, where like other people tell you that you should be a lawyer because of some skill set that they imagine lawyers have that they think you also share a talent for. And those people are usually wrong because they're usually not lawyers telling you this. They're like my aunt who's a teacher. You should be a lawyer. Why? Just because you heard me talk or argue something one time and you think lawyers argue in court all day. There's no qualifying right. reason. And, and that sounds like a nice thing to say at a dinner party. Like no one's going to give you some weird side eye if you're like, I'm an attorney. Yeah. So they're like, it's a safe job. Those people make money you can do that. So you should go to law school. That's interesting. I want to keep hearing about your story. But what you just said reminds me of a conversation we had recently, which is like, why do you make decisions? If you really pursue them down to the heart, it's hard to find a decision or a reason that you think you have that isn't ultimately like parasitic upon someone else's reason. You know what I yeah. mean? Like you hear somebody wants to do something and suddenly because they want to do it, you want to do it. Right. You're almost like miming your own desires on other people's desires. Yeah. If you don't look at them carefully and it's just weird how they unravel like that. It is weird. And, and if you look at a lot of people who went to law school, a lot of people I talked to when I first started, they were there for really interesting reasons. Some people were like, I just wanted a job that made a lot of money. And I was like, well, okay, that doesn't sound like a great reason to go to law school, but it's better than my reason, which was no reason, really. And then other folks were like, oh, well, this is my second career. And I'm, you know, I have kids now. And my first career, I was an engineer and I was just getting bored of it. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess switching careers, good a reason as any. But a lot of the other people were there for the same reason as me, like their parents or their aunts and uncles were like, you should be a lawyer. It's respectable. And, or they were from other countries and they didn't go to medical school. So they had to go to law school because that was kind of how you did things. If you didn't get into medical school, you went to law school because you're from India or something like that. Right. It's from the familiar playbook. Yeah. yeah. It's from the familiar playbook. Exactly. So what you're getting at then is that you were never really fully 100% interested or committed to the right. law. I had done no research on this, which in retrospect was kind of dumb. I shouldn't say no research. I did the standard amount of research that I think most dumb kids, which I was definitely was, fall into where I would ask my parents, if they knew any lawyers, and they're like, sure. And so those people were like, whoa, you, if you get into Michigan law, you should definitely go. But they're coming at it from a perspective of, well, clearly you've decided to become an attorney. So which school are you going to go to? Yes, it does matter. So I thought, oh, well, in that case, I'm going to apply to only good schools. And if I get in, I'll let that determine my career track, which is not, also not a really great way to do things. It sounded such like such a good idea back then, right? Because 
it's like saying, well, I'll go to college if I get into Harvard. And then you get into Harvard and you go to college and you're like, crap, I didn't want to go to college, right? But you don't know that in the time. And no one's going to be like, yeah, you should just turn down Harvard. Right. Because there's something better out there for you. I mean, that is almost guiding the decision at that point by itself. Yeah, my friend Jenny Blake, she wrote a book called Pivot. The only move that matters is your next one. She worked for Google and then she left because she was like, oh, I've kind of done my thing here. I'm going to write a book. And people were giving her a ton of crap. Like she just broke up with Brad Pitt is her... uh example, because she said people told her things like, well, you think you're going to do better than Google? And that was the same thinking that got me into law school. Well, okay, I got into Michigan law, I should go do this. And a lot of people do this with opportunities in their life, no matter what, like, well, I'll stay at this company if I get that promotion. And it's like, so you're managing other people, even though you hate your job right now, you're going to then turn into the person who dictates what people at your level are doing. Do you really think that's going to be better? I mean, that doesn't sound right at all. And so there's just, there's a lot of that sort of, I call it default thinking, where it's actually not thinking at all, but you're just following the default, right? The path of least resistance, where you're going through life kind of like, well, if I get into law school, I'll go. Well, if I get a job in New York, that's where I'll live. And sometimes that's a cool adventure when you're young. I don't fault anyone who does something like, well, if I get a job in China, I'll go there. If I get the job in Russia, I'll go there. Cool. But don't let it decide whether or not you spend seven years or four years or in law school, three years doing something that really only pays off if you have a career in that field. That's different than deciding where to go temporarily. Right. Like don't relinquish all control of your career just to the chance of where you get a job or where it takes right. you. But you're right. There is kind of like a magic to that adventure, right? I mean, you and I both have had some incredible experiences just following what the world is sort of telling us to do. Exactly. And the, the more you get, the older you get, the more things you do, you start to connect those dots and you realize that like, in a way that you couldn't possibly have understood, the world was subtly pushing you into interesting things if you chose to follow them. Right. Like, for example, my going to Serbia and being an English teacher for a year, that was cool. I'm not an English teacher. It was now, obviously. It was fun back then. I learned some Serbian. I made some great friends, had a great time. It was one year, and then I was done, and that was the end of that career. The reason that default thinking works there is because it's so temporary that the investment of time, even if it was like a terrible year and I hated the job, which I didn't, and, and I loved it, but even if it was like, I hate this career and I don't have friends here and I don't like Serbia, which wasn't the case at all, even like I kidnapped there, that's a story for another show, it would have been a beneficial experience in some other ways, even if I just traveled around Europe and been like a deadbeat for that year, yeah, right? Yeah, it was like a self-contained little experience. Yeah. yeah, but the reason that education doesn't fall into that same category is because you're paying so much to go do that, and then you end up with a set of quote-unquote qualifications over a period of multiple years that has opportunity cost, and then you have to go into that profession. Because now you're servicing the experience, you have to pay for it or whatever. Right. That is an interesting phenomenon of the world pushing you in ways that you wouldn't necessarily push yourself, but then also the world becoming kind of like a tyrant when you have to continue in that path and service that degree or service right. that job for years, which is, as you say, like a huge opportunity cost. But let's go back to you once you finished law school. Tell us what happened. Like you went to go work on Wall Street, right? Yeah, I did. I went to go work on Wall Street after law school. And this was also default thinking, right? So Looking back on how I got that job, I was using a lot of the principles from social capital that we have in our social capital course, right? I think I've told the story before, but the nutshell version is I had not made any plans since I thought default thinking was really working for me in terms of getting into school and getting a job and stuff. I, I just thought, all right, I'm in another country. I'm not even going to sign up for on-campus interviews. 
I'm just going to show up maybe to on-campus interviews. And everybody thought I was just crazy. So where were you at this point? I was probably in Serbia again, I think. So you were in Serbia during law school? Uh, during one of the summers, yeah. During I got the a, summers, I actually okay. got a government grant to go there from the Department of Defense to go back to Serbia. And so I was like, cool. That wasn't default thinking. That was something I'd applied for. I'm very tempted to ask you what that was all about, but something tells me you're going to be like, yeah, I can't really talk about that. <laughs> yeah. And, and so... <laughs> Jordan literally just looked down at the table, batted his <laughs> eyes, was like, let's just move on from that one. And, and so I I thought default thinking was working for me really well. And so what I ended up doing was going to on-campus interviews, last-minute decision, just showing up and, like, walking around. And I don't know what was wrong with me. I think I had had so many positive experiences from default thinking that I I thought I could go in there and make something happen. Sure, you got kidnapped. Why wouldn't you be able to ace your interviews? Obviously, I'm yeah, I'm fine. So I did talk to a bunch of people, and they're like, oh, I didn't think you were participating in this. Oh, you're not on any of the lists. Where are you going to interview? And I made a game of it. Super deep dive default thinking, right? I made a game of finding out where no-shows were by just walking by the emptiest lines for interviews in this hotel where they had set it up. And if somebody was like a no-show for their interview, I would literally just duck in there. Or I would give the person conducting interviews, the coordinators, my cell phone number, and I'd be like, call me if there's a no-show. And they're like, sure, because they want to fill their time too. They want to fill their time, but you're also telling them something about yourself without actually having to drop any like self-promotional BS, right? Like you're like showing that you're the dude who's just going to show up and want to talk to them. And hustle. Yeah. Hustle. Yeah. What they thought, and this is 2020 hindsight, but what they thought was, see, it's a bidding process for these interviews and I won't get into that too much. You sometimes didn't get a chance to interview at your favorite firms. You got to like rank them and then the stupid office, the career office would decide whether you got a chance to interview. What is this process? This doesn't make any sense. I know it's ridiculous, right? But they want to make it quote unquote fair for everyone. So I just went where there were no shows and people who were late or something doing something else or decided to go into a different interview. And those same firms would have me come in. So they thought I really wanted to interview there, but I had not made the list. So they were like, this guy actually wants to be here. So I got tons of calls. And then I ran into a friend of mine who was my undergrad college roommate. And he said, hey, Jeremy D is over at Thatcher Profit and Wood. Why don't you go say hi? And he was really well-connected, my undergrad college roommate, and he'd worked in D.C. and stuff. And I thought, well, that's kind of silly, but I guess I should go say hi. What I didn't realize is that go say hi means go say hello and maybe see what this person is doing here because he had graduated and was working for this law firm. So I showed up and I was like, hey, Jeremy, what's going on? He's like, hey, Jordan, give me your resume, man. So I was like, okay. So I gave him, you know, you're walking around with copies of your resume. I gave him my resume and he goes, cool, what are you doing right now? at lunchtime. And I was like, nothing, thinking he wanted to go out to lunch. And he goes, great, sit down, hold on one second. And he goes and the partner's like housing a Subway sandwich. And he's like, hey, do you want to do an interview during lunch? Do you mind if if the partner eats during it? Of course, go ahead. Yeah, of course, I'm here. Let's do it. I'm already here. This is my default thinking in action. So I sit down, do the interview, totally unprepared, which didn't look as bad as it would have. It looked fine because I hadn't signed up for the interview. So they were like, well, we don't expect you to be prepared. We weren't even on your list. You like accidentally shifted the terms of the interview. I completely shifted the terms by accident. Yeah, not planning to. So it didn't matter that I didn't know anything about the firm. I just knew generic stuff about firms. They were like, look, that's totally fine if you didn't make it to the list because that's not your fault. That's the career office's fault. So then they ended up giving me a check mark and flying me out to New York. And I got the job before I even landed back in Michigan 
after that interview process. So like, that's a great example of default thinking that in a way is actually really cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get what you're saying. Like, you don't want to just give yourself over to like accident. But this accident put you in touch with someone interesting at an interesting moment when you were basically living abroad and weren't even that invested right. in the process. And even though you're not a lawyer now, like so much of what you're doing, you could probably tie back to that experience. Like you definitely defected at some point. Yeah. But you do have that training and you probably wouldn't be doing what you're doing now if you hadn't started there. Of course. I just want to underline this, though. The, the whole Huckleberry Finn effect that we're seeing right now in default thinking and it works great when you use default thinking and you're super flexible, right? I had very little debt because I had this sort of Michigan scholarship thing from when I was born. My dad bought these like education credits, whatever, and they translated. And there were some stocks and stuff that I got in gifts when I was a kid that paid for law school. So I had I had taken on like 70 or 100 grand in debt, which was like nothing compared to my peers. And the rates were so low, blah, 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 whatever. So default thinking works great when you do that. It doesn't work great when, again, you're looking at a long-term investment of time, like law school and then a career, right? It works great when you're deciding on a vacation. It doesn't work great when you're deciding on, should we have kids? I don't know. Let's just keep having unprotected sex and see what happens. And then that's not good. 15, right? 20 years, you wake up and you're like, how did I get How here? did I get here? Right, yeah, right. that's that's not good default thinking. So, so there's you a get, place for it. There's a place for it, but it's not the strategy, right? So you end up on Wall Street, right? Right. Then what? So I end up on Wall Street and I'm having fun because it's new and I picked a great firm to work with with a lot of cool people in it that were all my age and really fun, like really great people, just good people. And then the market takes a downturn and I'm in mortgage-backed securities in the real estate department. So I start working in 2006, early 2007, I start working. Yeah, perfect timing. So I do like nine months of work And even that's pretty sparse because I'm a first year associate. So a lot of it's just baloney, Mm -hmm. checking for commas and documents. And then the downturn hits. Yeah, I think that spring or summer was when those two hedge funds at Bear Stearns fell. It was like May. It was like May or June because I remember I was working at Smith Barney. I was interning at Smith Barney that summer. And I just remember everybody freaking out when that happened. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was bad. And and so they were like, this is going to be over in five months. We're just going to keep you on. So the next six plus months or so, I sat there collecting full salary and benefits. And after a while, they're like, look, you don't even have to come to the office. And I was like, what? And bear in mind, I'd already been podcasting with AJ in the basement. Art of Charm still existed. I was kind of moonlighting. So these overlap then? They overlapped. Okay, so you start, oh, interesting. So you started the Art of Charm. In law school. In law school, that's right, I remember that. But I didn't realize that you were also working on it while you were working your job. I was. And we had our satellite radio show on Sirius XM as well. So look, I mean, default thinking kicks ass, right? Like I've got this high paying job where I now have no work. And I've got this other business that I'm running that happened to get me on Times Square satellite radio every Friday. But now you're living a double life, right? Yeah. So did you feel like when you put on that suit and you got in that elevator that you were like, who am I? What am I doing? Or was like, did it feel like... AOC was real life and this was some alternate reality or was it the reverse? That's a great question. I actually don't know the answer because when I went to the law firm, I had major imposter syndrome. And I still to this day kind of think that I'm right about that. You know, imposter syndrome where you just think I'm the only one that slipped through the cracks somehow. Yeah, totally like uh, I'm a fraud. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we talk about that a lot on the show. But I really do think that it was only a matter of time because I did not have it together. Do you mean as a lawyer? As a lawyer, but even just as a, as a guy, like I didn't have it together at all. I was that guy who would like walk out, forget your keys, go back in your apartment, 
take a glass of water and throw it in the sink and then walk out and go, oh, I still don't have my keys. Go back in to get my keys, uh, take my shoes off, and then like go to the bathroom and then walk back out and go, I still don't have my key. Like, I just was like an idiot. I don't know what was wrong with me. Super ADD. You were right? just like a little ADD or not yeah. totally there? Okay. Totally, totally absent-minded and ADD. So you were like, if I can't even get my keys when I leave the house, how am I possibly advising companies on what to do? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And there were so many, there were so many guys there that were like reading up on real estate. They're cousins worked in the industry. They were going to dinners with investment bankers. Right, these guys are like, they're living they the, the world of it and they're they love it. it. Yeah, they geek out about it and, and you I, did not. I was like, punch in, mail it in, punch out. But can we talk about that for a second? Because I think there's something unique about client services, like whether you're in the law or management consulting, which is what I did for a few years, like part of your job, especially in the early days when you're, I don't know, a first year associate or like some like, nobody analyst is to pretend that you know what you're doing when you don't know what you're doing. That's like a all. whole skill set. I'm telling you, like, I remember distinctly being in analyst training at Deloitte Consulting where I worked. And part of what they teach you is how to build a spreadsheet, how to build a model, how to do PowerPoint, the technical stuff you need to know. But there was so much about that job that was just like, somebody's going to say 10 words you don't understand. They're going to tell you to book a meeting with three people you never heard of. And you're 22 years old, you just landed in the airport in Wichita, Kansas, you live in New York, and now we're working at a manufacturing company that makes tractors, you don't know anything about tractors, but you better convince the client that you know exactly what a John Deere is and how it works and who wants it and how much it sells for like, you have to project that idea that you know what you're doing. So my gosh, I feel like it was probably something similar at the firm for you. And it's kind of funny how much of people's jobs is to pretend that they know what they're doing. So how can you not have imposter syndrome? Yeah, I agree. And I think some people are really good at it. I was not as adept at faking it because I just had no concept. I mean, there were guys and girls there that were super smart. Remember, Wall Street's hiring people who got top grades and me at top law schools. And those people were the smartest, quote unquote, smartest in terms of the legal skills that needed from their undergrad institutions, which were smart kids from their high school. So this is technically the cream of the crop in terms of the legal profession. I had actually gotten in through networking, da 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 through chance. So I really had good foundations for my imposter syndrome. Yeah, like you really didn't belong there. Right, it yeah. wasn't like, oh, I got a fluke high test score and then I got a fluke interview because of a family connection and then I got a fluke, da da da. No, this was like, I didn't have the scores. I didn't have the grades. I showed up when I wasn't necessarily invited. My friends shoved my resume in a stack, interviewed over lunch hour. They happened to need people like crazy because the market was booming and they hired me. And then I was the guy who like couldn't even remember my wallet and keys. But you were aware of that. I was aware of it was that. happening. Yeah. So my thing was don't show up too much. Not like attend, but show up in the sort of broader sense too much because somebody's going to go, who the hell are you? You don't know what you're doing. Oh, you were like trying to limit your exposure. Right. <laughs> so funny. whenever okay. there were projects, I was torn between volunteering for that project so that I didn't look like I had no enthusiasm, but making sure that I was like the last guy on the totem pole in that project so that somebody was just telling me what to do all the, so no the, at all times. So no one could see you, yeah. No one could see me. Right. And that was kind of a miserable existence, waiting for the other shoe to drop and also feeling crappy about your prospects in that career. And that's one of the reasons that I got into 
the Art of Charm heavy duty stuff, because we'd already been doing the podcast, it was mostly about sort of dating and relationships and stuff. But one of the guys that had hired me, Dave, um, he was never in the office, and everyone who listens to the show has heard the story a million times, but he took me out for coffee, and I asked him why he was never in the office, and he said, I'm making relationships, and I'm building relationships, and that's why I'm not there. And that was, for me, like, wait a minute, this is the secret weapon that I can use to get to the top of the law game because I'm not good at a lot of the other stuff, but I have a natural ability to work with this, and, and that natural ability wasn't natural at all. It happened to come from working on the Art of Charm skills so that you we saw, teaching. you saw another role that fit you better. Exactly. In, not just at the firm, but in the world, clearly. I was just like, wait, what if I become like a rainmaker for this firm? Then I won't have to worry about being an incompetent SOB. Right. Right. Yeah. Then you can wake up at nine and play golf and bring in business and yeah. you'll play by a different set of rules. But here's my question While you were working moonlighting basically on AOC, did you feel that imposter syndrome when you worked on that stuff? On the Art of Charm stuff? Yeah, yeah. No, the Art of Charm stuff was great. I mean, sure, you're challenging yourself because you're teaching people a skill. At the same time, you're working on mastering that same craft for a little bit further down the path, maybe, than the guys that were coming in to our programs. But it was super fun. And it was kind of weird because that was the beginning of the startup stage. This is the honeymoon phase of Art of Charm where everybody was super fun and all the clients were just having tons of fun and all the people who worked here were having fun. And we had... 21-year-old, not even interns, like sleeping on the couches in our badass Manhattan apartment that had a pool and a jacuzzi and a squash court and a gym and trainers and famous people live there and a roof deck and all this stuff. And that was what I was spending some of my salary on. But there was like six, seven people living in there and it was a one friggin' bedroom apartment. I mean, it was ludicrous, right? Ludicrous, but salad days, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it was really super fun to come back home after working at this law firm and being bored to tears or just like hanging out and talking and surfing blogs. And then be able to work on something you actually love. And then come home and everyone's like, Jordan, and they're about to go out and they're eating a pizza and they're hitting the gym and class had just ended that Johnny and AJ were teaching and essentially what was my living room back then, you know? And so it was awesome. And on days where I, I had to have my tonsils out, as an adult, which is very strange, and it's kind of serious surgery, and they mandated that I take 10 days off, between 10 and 14 days, and the firm was like, definitely take the full two weeks off, because things are slow. Remember, the market had already kind of hit this tank. Yeah, and you didn't want to be there anyway. And so. I didn't want to be there anyway, and I had recovered really well after even five days, maybe even three days. I was young and healthy as a bull, so I recovered, and I couldn't talk that well, but I was still up and at him and all around, yet I had like 10 more days off after that. So I just hung out with all the guys and it was frigging epic. I mean, it was just amazingly epic. Were you guys coaching at this point? Yeah, we were coaching. Johnny was here coaching. We had brought him up from North Carolina. AJ had flown in from Detroit, Ann Arbor to work with us in New York. So it was just, it was frigging amazing. So you basically had some vacation time. You had already recovered. Right. And now you're like, why isn't this my real life? I'm like, why isn't this my real life? Yeah. So at what point did you decide this is, I'm just going to make this my real life? What happened was the firm started, there was just no work. And that was later on the point where they were like, hey, you just don't even have to show up anymore. There's no point. And they had that kind of all hands meeting where they're like, look, we're going to be guys, removing some redundancies. What was great about it was it was a bunch of Brooklyn guys and they were like, look, we don't know when this shit storm is going to end. So what we think you should do for your career, we just feel bad for you. We're not giving you any work. We're not going to fire you. 
But after this year, if it doesn't look up, we're not going to have an incoming class and we're not going to have new associates. You should try to get another job for the sake of your career. And they're like, we're just going to pay you for the rest of the year. But you should not even be here unless you need to use the office and the computers and you want to talk to HR or you want to do anything with the fax machines or the copiers or whatever. We're at your disposal. But don't think you have to show up and provide what we call FaceTime. Pretty, pretty cool way to get fired. It's a great way to get fired. Um, so yet another way that default path kind of was serving you. Yeah. So you just went I just with stopped it. showing up. Okay. And I copied crap from my computer that was personal, which you're not supposed to have on there anyway, but they didn't even care at this point. And... I bounced and they had loaned me money too. And I, I was like, should I pay this back? And the HR person was like, well, technically, yes. But between you and I, don't bother. We're not going to freaking send you to collection. Oh my God. Everybody at this company was probably like, we don't even know if we're going to exist. So yeah. just don't even worry. She about was that. like, because I'd taken like a $10,000 summer loan. She's like, yes, I need you to send me the $800 checks for the last two months. I'll contact you each month that you need to send over the check. So they basically gave you a little bit of funding to ease the transition to AOC full-time, right? Not only were they paying me full salary and benefits each month, which was awesome, they had given us essentially another month's pay on top of it to kind of, quote-unquote, ease our transition. Because a lot of people had to move. Right. They were like, I can't find another job in Manhattan. So they went home. And these are the people who really wanted to be there on top of it. Yeah, I felt really, yeah, I felt bad Isn't that weird? I remember that, like, 2008 was when I joined the firm, and that 2008 to 2009 was such a weird period. And one of the weirdest things about it was watching the people who wanted to be there so badly or like in some cases like needed to be there because you know yeah they had gone to business school and they had families and their whole identity was wrapped up in that business card yeah and it's like painful to watch you just realize you have so much to lose when all your eggs are in that basket you do yeah. but now these people you're young so you were you know at a different stage of life but they basically told you start a new phase right yeah so that's what you did and, okay. and so this is where the default thinking was serving me, right? Because my other default thinking was, I went through like a two hour, maybe two day, and I put this in air quotes, panic, where I thought, oh my God, I better start getting another job. So I called in my friends and I was like, guys, is your firm hiring? And some places were, but it was pretty obvious to the partners at some IP litigation firm that some guy in a real estate department who's a first-year associate who hasn't even completed that first year and is now applying for jobs there is damaged goods, right? You didn't really want to work there. You didn't really want to work in patent litigation. You're scrambling because the firm is effed. Why are we going to hire you? You're not experienced. Like, just get off my doorstep. Didn't even get interviews with other firms. And a lot of people were really having the similar troubles. And then I thought, wait a minute. I'm working eight hours a day on Art of Charm and then going home and hanging out with the Art of Charm guys and thinking about Art of Charm 24-7. So why am I wasting my time trying to get another job that I don't want? This is dumb. So I just said, screw it. I'm not going to. And default thinking and risk-taking at that level of my career, since I had low debt, super low rate, bunch of savings, and, and money was still coming in, I just thought to myself, well, I'm just going to focus on AOC. Just that next step. And they closed off the other avenue anyway. It clo yeah. Like, was there ever a time or were there ever times in the AOC journey where you weren't sure if you should have kept going? And if, it, if there was like a moment where you were like, I either have to make a choice to continue going and building this company or I need to go somewhere else. And you decided to keep going. Like, what was going through your head if there were those moments? Well, the, the thing that I had sort of realized was, one, I was hustling to get a job that I didn't really want to replace another job that I didn't really want. And that was a tough decision because everyone's like, you better get another job. You better get another job. You better get another job. 
my parents were surprisingly supportive. They're like, look, you can always move back home. There's tons of jobs. It's fine. They, they were cool. They were cool. They didn't really panic with me. They like wouldn't indulge that because they're like, dude, you got this job so easily. What are you even worried about? And I just thought like, you're not seeing the rejection that I'm seeing. Yeah. In some ways that makes you more nervous, right? Right. Other people are like, you're fine. Yeah. Like, but I'm not. But I'm not. Yeah. I just thought, what's the best case scenario? And this is kind of a cool drill, right? That what's the best case scenario? Let's say I get hired by patent bogs or whatever I was applying to and I get a job. It's going to be 12 hour days. It's going to be 12 hour days, six days a week, seven days a week, whatever. I'm not going to have time to work on Art of Charm. I don't want that job more than I want Art of Charm to work. So what the hell am I doing here? And I decided to not play it safe. I decided to quit, go all in on AOC. And that's exactly what happened. Were you aware that you had like a set of skills that you were like, if I can just put this all into the company, then it has a good shot of working? Or were you just following the fun of it? I'd love to say, look, we had this grand plan where we had all this good stuff going on, but really we were just young, optimistic startup nerds at that point that didn't know what we were doing. This is before startup culture was a thing. This is 2008, 2009, Yeah, it wasn't like the cool thing to do, yeah. It wasn't. People were not turning down Wall Street jobs to start companies. Hell like no. Yeah. no. And nobody our age was starting companies. Everybody our age that we'd met that was also a quote-unquote entrepreneur, like printed t-shirts or you know, rock band promoters. Right, they or, were like side hustles. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was yeah. all just kind of like teenager, right. immature so stuff. So you guys were basically, you were naive to a certain degree. Definitely. Like not even idealistic, you were no. just naive. Naive. But but also you were in touch with what was fun about what you were building with AOC. Like I know based on what you told me, the early days were kind of a happy accident. They I mean, were. What, what you yeah. were describing, for example, like in New York, like that doesn't sound like a company. That sounds like an experience that was like slowly calcifying into a company. Great. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. It really was. So I wonder whether that's a, a huge part of whether something is worth pursuing when you just feel like this is interesting. Something's happening here. Like I, I notice that when I come home from this job, I don't really like, I actually love my friends and I love myself and I love what I'm doing. So let me just see where that goes. Cause that's probably a pretty good indicator that I'm on to something. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now, back to the show. It was kind of like, look, worst case scenario, we had a ton of fun doing this for the last few years, and then I'll figure out how to get a job, because default thinking. I'll just huckleberry thin my way through this. Does that make sense when I use that expression like that? It's funny you say that, because I've been reading a lot about Mark Twain recently. I read that book in high school, and like everybody else was like, I don't really get... As an adult, that book is incredible. It makes perfect sense to me. Not only insanely well-written, but like, yeah, his philosophy of life. But why don't unpack it a little bit? Because I don't know if everybody knows. Right. So when I say Huck Finn my way through this, what I mean is, and I could just be misremembering this, but when I remember reading Huck Finn, it was something like he just starts walking down a road one day after some other adventure and it's getting dark. And he's like, huh, I should probably sleep somewhere. And he like, sees a house in the distance. So he just goes, I'll just walk towards this house. And they say, who's there? And he says, it's me. And they say, who's me? And he goes, George Jackson, I think is what he said. I can't remember. This is I don't remember the the name either. Yeah. George Jackson. And they're like, who? George Jackson. And they're like, all right, because that was the family that was in the Hatfield McCoy feud. And he ended up just living with them for a while and becoming a part of their family. Okay, got it. That's kind of how I was Like running. just one foot in front of the other, It right? was just one foot in front of the other. So I was like, look, I've got pay coming in. We're making some money at AOC. We're living on shoestrings. I mean, everybody's living under my roof and I'm giving everybody like a grand a month to pay for food. That's it. And we survived on that for a while. And then Johnny was bartending on off nights and eating at the bar and... I had saved up tons of money. I was living off that. And it was, AJ was, you know, skimming by on some of that stuff. And so in each of your ways, you were making it work. We're just making it work. But I wonder, like, this one step at a time thing, do you think that's a philosophy that you can live by at any point in your life, in any experience? Or do you think that's something that's unique to being young and naive? I think there's a beauty in being young and naive when you do it, because right now, I think if I tried to do it, I would not be able to do it without a massive level of anxiety that goes along with it. Is that just because your lifestyle's changed or? Lifestyle lifestyle has definitely changed. Um, I think part of the problem is bills, right? And I don't mean like, oh, I've got to make ends meet. But I mean, look, if you 
want more freedom, don't buy a house, don't buy a car, don't get engaged, don't get cats or dogs or whatever, don't do any of that stuff. But the problem is when you huck fin your way through the whole life, I know a lot of AOC clients that have been huck finning for a while. Some of them love it, they're well suited to it, and they're younger and it's great, they're moving to Columbia and they're working on boats and they're doing this and they're doing that. But some of the guys that I see in the entrepreneur circles and also AOC clients who are maybe in their 40s and 50s doing it, I think there's something missing from their life that they're still searching for. And part of the reason that they're not finding it is because you can't really go one foot in front of the other and build something that's got real purpose behind it. Those things just come with planning. You can't just stumble into some great, amazing thing that becomes a phenomenon. It's so rare that you're betting on winning the lottery. And that's fine, right? If you're Alice Cooper and you're thinking like, hey, wouldn't it be cool to start a band? Whenever you look at people who you think have stumbled into something and done the Huckleberry Finn thing into fame and fortune, when you really start to read about it, you're like, wow, okay, you were surrounded by really sharp people. You had some lucky breaks, but you also worked your ass off for a long time to make this band or whatever a reality. Just bumbling through it is not going to work. And I think if you try it long enough, you end up kind of depressed. That's so a true. Bit. Like the version of events that you read about and you hear about, especially with success stories, they're like the tip of the iceberg of how that story happened. I wonder all the time, like, why is it that that's the version of events that gets passed around? People who succeed in their fields enjoy, I think, telling a story and making it sound almost serendipitous yeah. or accidental or a little easy. And I think that perpetuates a myth it does. that is really damaging. Like, I mean, if you can see it for what it is, then it won't, you know, you won't fall for it. But like, we're so susceptible to believing in stories where it's just like, and then I did that. And then this happened. And then people really liked it. And then before I knew it, I was Alice Cooper. Right. But like, that's not how life works. So it's like, not. Why is it that that's the version of stories that gets passed around? The reason I think that a lot of people do that is because of two things, there's probably more, but the two things that come to mind are, I guess it's called hindsight bias. It's actually more like hindsight distortion, where you're going, well, you know what? I just worked really hard, and I got a great team together. Like if an analyst looks at that business and does a case study for Harvard Business School or something, what really ended up happening in that estimation is you caught lightning in a bottle because you decided to make a mobile video app when mobile phones were just getting cameras. And then when you did that, you had a couple of viral videos that were really popular because the person who was in it had some crazy scandal and then that video went viral, which got you a bunch of users and then you got acquired by AOL, which acquires everything for ridiculous amounts of money. But then you took that money and reinvested it, which got you reacquired by or sold to Facebook or something like that, right? But what that ends up being is you go, see, we created this amazing app and everyone loved it and we created users and then we got acquired by Facebook. But it's like kinda, but there was all these different things, luck and circumstance and things like that, that came into play that you weren't aware of in the moment and are clearly not really looking at. Because the second point, which is, if you do have to acknowledge those things, it makes you look less awesome than you really I are. completely agree with that. That is so dead on. Because when you look at the people you admire and you try to figure out how they got to where they are, mm -hmm. The last thing they want to do is be like, and then I chatted up the person on the subway next to me about his shoes, and it just so happened that that dude 
was working on a screenplay mm-hmm. that he needed some help with. And he still didn't want to hire me, but I pestered him and I sent him nine emails over the next year saying like, what are you doing? What are you working on? How can I help? Da, 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 da. And even then he wouldn't meet with me, but finally we met. And then, da, da, and then before you know it, it's like, if this is even an interesting story, which some yeah. people would be like, I don't want to hear about this. I want to hear about how it was successful. You know, right. like you've reduced the magic of your success to like a series of banal details. Right. And like, I don't think people want to hear them. And the people who do want to hear them are asking for those details from somebody who doesn't really want to reveal them. Exactly. So that's why you hear amazing stories from luminaries in the entrepreneurship field that go something like this. You have to follow your passion. This is what's going to keep you up motivated at night to do this and waking up at five o'clock in the morning to make it happen because you're not going to stop at anything to let somebody get in the way of this. Nothing, no haters are going to get in your way or whatever, right? Right, just that like blustering kind of self-help stuff. Super self-helpy, hustly kind of crapola. The problem is that's not what got them there. Those are qualities that they may have, super hustle, determination, grit. That's great. That's definitely a part of what made them successful, no question about it. However, that's not all that it was. And for them to also say, and we got really lucky because one of our co-founders' father had a direct connection to the CEO of Microsoft, which got us an inside look at something that they were looking to build that they were doing a terrible job with. And we were able to poach some people from this other company because we have these other things going on. They don't want to talk about that because that's not a commencement speech material. It's not commencement speech material. And I think they think it detracts from the legacy or the myth of how awesome they are. Right. They're doing everybody a disservice. They don't mean to be, I don't think, but they're doing everybody a disservice. Anybody who really wants to know what it takes. There's a reluctance to talk about luck in general. And we should talk about this for a second because you and I have both worked insanely hard, but we've also been extremely lucky. I actually don't believe that luck is one of those things that like some people are lucky, some people are not. And the ones who are lucky have that extra little bit that gets them there. Like luck plays a huge role, but it doesn't really mean all that much unless you meet it with a ton of like all those other things you just talked about. Hard work, determination, creativity, like whatever it is that puts the lucky pieces together in the right way. What's that? Yeah. What's that misattributed Mark Twain thing? The luck and opportunity. Luck is preparation meets opportunity, which is like, yeah, we've heard that so many times, but it's true. Yeah. But I wonder why people are so reluctant to talk about it. Is it because they're not willing to also say, well, yeah, my friend's dad did know the director of American Express or whatever, you know, Yeah. but it was us who had the answer to that problem that they really needed. You know what I mean? Like we had the thing that they needed right at that moment. They needed it. Like if they just joined the two together and were very clear, that's a story I'd want to hear. Yeah. But we're not hearing those. We're not hearing that stuff because you have to take an unemotional look at what makes something successful and look at everything that that business maybe had tried, failed at the people involved, et cetera, which one is a massive undertaking. So you have to be a real business analyst or academic to be able to do it. To do the forensics. To do the forensics. And two, it's not something that we as humans are naturally equipped to do. I'm equipped naturally to look at something that made an emotional impression on me and signal that as maybe a deciding factor. And also it's impossible for me to take an unemotional look at my own business because I'm so close to it. Because it's your life. Yeah. So yeah, like you're not really, most people are not in the business of doing the postmortem on themselves. No. Which is why you have like professional biographers and forensic analysts and all that. But You and I have had this conversation a lot over the years, and it's coming up more and more because it's becoming, I think, a problem on the internet. And it's this. It's this new phase of self-help stuff. And this luck and the storytelling that we're talking about is part of it. 
I'm talking about the kind of self-help stuff that you read when you jump on Medium. And it's just a feed of people telling you empty bromides about how to work hard or live your passion or uh, I don't know. I mean, I can't even I can't stand this stuff. So I can't even remember like the most common catchphrases. But I'm talking about that self-help that's taught by people whose only followers are other people who want to teach self-help. Yeah, totally. Which is like the biggest red flag to me. It is, yeah. And it's kind of a mystery, unless I'm just completely underestimating people's intelligence these days. Like, why do these people have such big followers? Overestimating, maybe. People's intelligence, I think, is what we're guilty of doing. Overestimating, because like, how else do you explain why people are so susceptible to that? Yeah, I, I think there's a few things going on here. I love the word bromides because it is really just like these empty, meme crap that's really easy to share. And it's funny because when we look at long format work, like the Art of Charm podcast that you're listening to right now, this takes a lot of time, a lot of prep. It's hard to share, kind of. It requires an investment from the listener. It requires an investment for you to convince somebody else to invest their time and effort listening to it. Then you gotta go and apply it. But what requires no prep no investment and almost no work whatsoever is a picture of somebody on a beach with their laptop with a frickin' quote that's misattributed to Roosevelt or Mark Twain or yourself written on it that says, do what matters or live effectively or just whatever. Published on a website that tells you at the top, this is a two minute read. Yeah, or Instagram or Or whatever. Which is even faster. Like these little bite-sized empty calories of self-help. What I don't quite understand about it is that people clearly respond to good self-help. Like self-help, I mean, there's a negative connotation to it, but it's there's so much good stuff out there that it's just crazy that all this other stuff is what gets momentum. I don't know, do you have a sense of why people don't see that weird like Ponzi scheme of self-help gurus whose clients are self-help gurus? Like, why is that working? I'm not totally sure why people don't see it. I think a lot of it has to do with the epidemic lack of critical thinking that people are now seeming to exhibit that everyone is is seemingly guilty of. And I've lambasted this on social media and on the show as well, where there's just empty quotes that people put up there, the same topic essentially. So there's a lack of critical thinking, but there's also a plus factor of wishful thinking involved too, where there's the dream of being insert sort of buzz phrase here, digital nomad, entrepreneur, self-employed, mobile, whatever, you know, I just travel and I work from a laptop. There's apps that show you how to work hard from different places. And I love those things. If you have a business going, that's great. But there's this sort of dream of escaping the nine to five that is a lot of fun because millennials, technically speaking, really don't like the idea of somebody else being the boss and somebody else having to work for somebody else. They don't like the lack of freedom. And I understand that. I'm not saying grow up, everybody. I totally get that. But what I think happens is there's an element of shame of having a real job. That's why people won't admit when they have friggin' side jobs and they'll pretend that that's their whole job when they have a real job doing something else. Why is that a secret? Why are you pretending your side hustle is your full-time job? This should not be something that you're ashamed of. It's almost, yeah, you're right. It's almost become a shameful thing to have a traditional job after we've mythologized the magic of startup life, which we know is not magical, which is brutal, which is a path where most people fail. Mm -hmm. But there's still something where it's like, oh, yeah, no, I mean, I I work at a 
Procter and Gamble. I'm a marketing director. And everyone's like, oh, you're just a marketing director. That's right. too bad. Why aren't you living in a hostel in Bali doing graphic design and sending out a newsletter to people? You know, whatever that so is. So that you can, and teaching yoga all day. Which is awesome. Which, you, hey, that would be great. It would be so great. Oh, now you're saying it. I'm like, I want to do that. But I guess it's just funny that like you don't hear from the guy who's in Bali working from his laptop who, you know, doesn't have an apartment, who's has graphic design clients all over the world, because that guy's too busy doing his job. Doing it. You're hearing it from these people who's are in Bali because they're selling it to other people they're selling who it. want to fantasize about that. Life. Exactly. So they're selling a dream. But the problem is they haven't accomplished the dream. So they're effing unqualified to give you this advice. It's really funny to see you get worked up about it. Because to me, the exact opposite of that is what you do. What's been cool about watching you work on the podcast for so many years is that I've seen it go through a few phases now. Like you were already doing it when we met, but I think it was probably at the tail end of that first era totally. of The Art of Charm where it was like totally an experiment. You were probably doing episodes somewhat irregularly. I think one a week and then one every other week and then three. And then, you know, it was like mm -hmm. sort of that thing. And then it's been cool to watch you think of it as a craft where you're like, okay, this is a tool for the business. It helps us build the brand. But I personally want to become a great interviewer. I want to find out the answers to these great questions that I have. Like, I take this seriously because I'm excited about it. And that is harder. And it's totally different from this version of self-help that we're talking about right now. It's completely different because a lot of people who I think, again, just don't have very developed thinking skills, they're the first ones to kind of jump out and say, well, what about you? You teach skills that are supposed to be helping people find the life that they want and accomplish things. And I'm not saying AOC is the only company that does this, but the difference between us teaching you tangible and soft skills in terms of networking and relationships is I'm not teaching you to be a teacher of networking and relationships or to be a podcaster, right? Or to be a broadcaster or a writer, whatever the things we do. I'm teaching you these skills so you can apply them in your own craft, in your own world, in your own life. When someone is teaching you how to be a digital nomad or they're teaching you how to be a guy girl who makes money from home or some sort of online thought leader personality, they're selling you a dream. And what are they doing? They are an online thought leader personality who sells marketing stuff so that you can be an online thought leader and personality yeah, yeah, what yeah. sells marketing stuff. It's called a pyramid scheme and you do that in any other niche. How interesting that they never sell a dream that's different from the one that they're trying to live themselves. Right. So I've never really thought of it that way, but that's such a good way to think about the red flags. Like if somebody isn't selling you a set of skills or a set of like a point of view about the world, but they're selling you a specific way of life. Yep. Then it doesn't mean that's necessarily BS, but like just look out. Look at that's strange. Yeah. Look at it very closely. And I think that it's very tempting to look at that and say, I'm going to learn from this person. But bear in mind, let's say I'm teaching you how to make money online. How did I make my money? Oh, teaching other people how to make money online. So then how did I make my first dollar? Did I do it doing something else online? So I learned how to make money online. And now I'm teaching you how to make money online. Or did I make my first dollar online telling other people how to make money online because that's the case for most of these people. And that means by definition that their first sale was based on a lie. Oh, I'm going to teach you how to make money online. Well, have you done it? Well, I'm doing it right now by selling you this product. Right. right? And a lot of people do that. A lot of people do that. And that becomes very problematic because it's really easy 
to look at somebody who's been doing this for years and just say, well, yeah, you know, Gabriel Mizrahi is great at teaching people how to make money online, but they never think about how this person learned it. Their origin story turns out to be complete BS. Thanks for plugging my product, bro. Yeah, right, exactly. I got this weekly newsletter that teaches you all about that. But but it's true, and you see things like Instagram, make money off of Instagram, and it's like, well, okay, but you're not making money off of Instagram, you're making money telling people how to make money off of Instagram. So theoretically, much of what you teach is not based on what you actually do. And that's a huge problem. So given all of that, in the moments when things got hard at AOC, and maybe they didn't, I don't know, I'm getting the sense yeah, from you, to be honest. I know that it wasn't, you know, smooth sailing 100% no, yeah. of the time. It never is. But I'm kind of getting the sense that things have worked out quite well for you guys by following what it is that you guys loved. Right. But I know that there were hard times. So when those moments came along, like what carried you through? We had a delusional sense of self-confidence, but we also were very focused on making our clients and students happy and focusing on putting out good shows like this, right? So the quality. The quality, because we just figured, and this is also a bit of naivete, that if you put out really good stuff and you create really good stuff, eventually enough people will start to find you and see it and you'll get word of mouth. That was sufficient for survival, thankfully, but it's not sufficient to thrive, especially in this noisy marketplace where people who know how to, let's say, leverage Snapchat or some other sort of weird online BS, I'm not saying Snapchat's BS, but I'm saying people who know how to make themselves look really great when really all they do is kind of like the same thing as a million other people. to do that, yeah. They can build a huge business based on fluff. They can actually build bigger businesses based on fluff than you can on quality, but here's the thing. You can't scale that high if all you have is fluff. You have to eventually come up with something. And I'm a firm believer that it takes a really long time to create and maintain, build and sell a quality product like our boot camps or like this free podcast. This takes a long time to be able to create things like this. It's faster to create the fluff in the marketing of online business that gets the word of mouth around and gets people to buy things. So that does two things. One, that's the reason that tons of people get obsessed with it because that's the easy part and it's the part that feeds the ego the most. Well, I could work on my product, but I'd rather get 100,000 Facebook followers and Twitter followers and Snapchat followers that are hitting me back and making me feel cool and liked. That's easier and more fun than, hey guys, we need to spend like the next six months to a year working out the kinks in this application that we're running, just pitching investors and really busting our asses. It's really, really hard. It's really easy to make a better website. It feeds the ego for the person who's selling that product to get that kind of following on the easy stuff. It does. But it's also tapping into the ego of the people who want to hear it. Exactly. So it's just ego feeding on ego. And I think you're right. If there's any silver lining to this, if that's the right word, then it's that it really can't go all that far in the long run. It'll be tough. Every sort of flash in the pan online marketer, and I, I won't name names, just you know, think about the people you saw selling crap online three to five years ago, if you've been around looking at the scene that long, where the hell are most of those people? They're still up to their old tricks, but they're not a big deal anymore. A lot of them are speaking for free or in exchange for like book sales at lame-o events that I end up going to. I'm like, man, you're doing this now? Like, I remember when you were such a big deal and you had this book for sale and like you were the guy when it came to this weird social media trend. And now you're just like this divorced sort of pathetic soul who's got a funnel squeeze page on his website that hasn't been changed or updated in five years. And the funny thing is that if there were any self-help, like some Medium article that told you what to do when things got hard, that just said, keep making something awesome, 
nobody would read it. No. And if they read it, they'd be like, great, what do I do with that? But the fact is that that is the real thing. Well, there's, it's also incomplete advice, though, because I know a lot of people that create really good things and they're terrible at marketing it. And sometimes they eventually do get discovered, which is why we're even talking with them now. For example, there's this guy, Jocko Willink, who's a Navy SEAL that I interviewed on the show. And he'd also been interviewed by Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan and Sam Harris. And he just exploded onto the scene. But he had written a business book called Extreme Ownership, right? And that book made somewhat of a splash but not nearly as big of a splash as his podcast tour had made. And now he's just, this is a multi-seven-figure business, I'm sure. He's consulting, and he's got just hundreds of thousands of followers online that are just incredible. He's a great guy. Had he not also done a little bit of the marketing or been, quote-unquote, discovered by some of us podcasters, he might have just released a really good book that didn't really make much of a dent or that a few people read instead of 500,000 people or whatever who have now probably read this thing. Right. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying is that it's not enough just to be good or to make something good. There's a lot of other stuff that has to come into play. And there's no feedback, really, a lot of it. Well, less feedback. When you're making something really great and three people tell you, this is amazing, it doesn't feel as good as making something that looks cool on Facebook and having 300 people or 3,000 people tell you that over the span of a month. Which is the hall of mirrors of social media yep. that's creating that illusion. Yeah. As you know, <laughs> you're one of my closest friends, so you've had like a front row seat. I write screenplays. Right. And so much of that process is working on something and reworking it and reworking on it alone. Yes. Where if it's going poorly, it's going poorly. If it's going well, it's a private victory. Like, nobody knows. And even to this day, there are things I've written that are sort of in the works, and I'm excited. I'm so excited about the day that people do get to see them. But until that day comes, it's still going to be this incredibly private thing. And the reason I bring it up is that you and I have talked about that, of that obsession with craft of getting good at something. But so often, getting good at something is a private experience. It's something only for you. And if you're obsessed with becoming good at something because you love getting good at the craft of it, then that can be insanely fulfilling and it will carry you through. But in those moments where you hunger for somebody to notice you or, you know, like give you 100 likes on Facebook for doing the thing that you say you're doing with your life or, you know, you need that validation, like when that stuff starts to creep in, then I think that's where you can start to get hungry or susceptible to the version of self-help that we've been talking about. Yeah. Do you have any advice or do you have any thoughts for people who are working or should be working on something where the payoff is over a long time, you might toil in obscurity for a while? And I'm asking you that as a podcaster who's been doing this for nine and a half years, nine and a half years. And I would argue in the last year has really, really hit his prime in terms of quality of the craft of being a great interviewer. Like, what is the recipe for becoming great at something and dealing with the moments where you're not getting recognized? Yeah, the reason that this stuff is also top of mind because I've been thinking, I've been doing this for so long, and then I'll go speak at an event, and there's another guy that's got a major online footprint and a thriving business, and he'll say something like, we'll be chatting at a dinner, you know, a speaker's dinner or something, and he's, yeah, I blogged for two and a half years, and then I wrote this book, or my blog just started getting really popular because it got mentioned by a few influencers, and now I've got this great business. And I'm like, but you're kind of just selling the same rubbish or it's not that unique, or it's just kind of your personality for sale, and you got a lot of Snapchat followers, and like all the guys are really young or whatever. And I'm not hating on the audience or anything. I'm just kind of like, oh, Art of Charm has created amazing products and amazing boot camps, and, and what I like to think are amazing podcasts. But 
there's somebody else who just really focused on Twitter, Facebook, and then Snapchat and YouTube and is just, everyone's like, oh, dude, can I take a selfie with you? And that used to grate on me a little bit, not to the core, not like this son of a bitch, you know, because I realized what we were doing is important. But I kind of thought, well, geez, you know, what's happening here? So I started to study these things more in depth and I started to look at people I think are actually real success. They have lasting success. So I'm looking at people like Steve Jobs, Mike Rowe, folks like that. And, and I start to read and research them more than most people will. And what you see, and this won't surprise anybody who's a listener of the show, that we're looking at the tip of the iceberg in very much a, a metaphorical sense here because you look at guys like Mike Rowe and you think, oh man, you know, yeah, he got tapped to do dirty jobs, then he got another show and he's a really likable guy and he does this charity and all this stuff. Well, yeah, but he was on QVC for years before that and he was auditioning for stuff and then before that he was like a trained Broadway singer or something. I mean, this person has been putting in their 10,000 hours, which we know is not necessarily true here, but they've been putting in the, the time for years and years and years and years and years. Now they've got lasting success, but you know, what? At age 42, he started in the big time. He dipped his foot in the Discovery Channel or Learning Channel waters at, in his 40s. Well, that's much, much different than the 27-year-old fitness guy who made a YouTube channel, got a couple of viral videos, and is now on top of the world. Those guys fade because they're very replaceable. And the truth is that I found is anything that you do that isn't something that's so uniquely you, based on hundreds, thousands of hours of expertise, is a commodity at some level. It would be impossible, nearly impossible, for someone else to replicate the Art of Charm podcast quality and, and the amount of content that's out there, the boot camps that we run, the products that we create. It would be very, very hard, next to impossible, because it took us so long. Yeah, and if you judge people on that narrow set of things that you can see, then yeah, you could be like, but he has so many followers, or exactly. people are talking about him on Snapchat or whatever. But if you look under the hood and you're like, what is really happening here? And and really, I feel like it keeps coming back to this thing of the craft of it. It is. You know, I remember you got a an email. I'm trying to remember if this was the one. It might have been the one we did together a few weeks ago, the Fan Mail Friday episode where the guy wrote in about having worked in different sales organizations. And it was like you could hear a little bit of how this guy was, even though he worked as a sales guy at a company, he was thinking of it as like, no, I'm I'm working on my craft. Like, this is my craft, my set of things. And you don't hear people talk about that that often because, again, I think it's back to that version of events that gets packaged and sold. Yeah, just to underline this a little bit, I still think that the sort of repackaging of fake success and people selling you this dream and stuff, I think it's not like, beware, they're all scammers and all just blood-sucking leeches. That's only like 50%, maybe even 30% of the story. I think it's just the way human nature works is you repackage your history and you say, and da, 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 this is what happened. And even with Art of Charm and some of our shows and things like that, I'm still ironing out, I'm sure, just based on the psychological principles that we've studied here, some of the ups and downs that I've forgotten. And I'm sure if you got me and AJ and Johnny and everybody else that was around in the beginning in a room, we would all have a different version of how this thing kicked off with different ups and downs, some of, of course, which would be very similar, but also it would start to look a lot less like a smooth trajectory and a lot more like what it really was. I'm so glad you said that because I think there might be people listening to this being like, I hear that, I agree, and you're kind of doing it right kinda now. doing it right know? now, And yeah. so, yeah, you're right. Like, we should call that out because there's just something very satisfying about being able to package in that way. But I also think that if you did, Jordan, want to sit down and catalog all of the minute successes and all of the like weirdly detailed failures along the way, 
I feel like at a certain point, people would just be like, this is not that interesting or even not as yeah. helpful as I wanted it to be. So I don't know where that leaves anybody who wants to learn how to become a success because you know where it leaves you. It leaves you with go out and try it and do it for yourself mm -hmm. and go find out. Because even if I could do that for you and even if you wanted to hear it, then what? Then you still have to go out and do yeah. it. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all of our amazing sponsors and discount codes, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, back to the show. And sort of in summary, I understand why people follow the advice that makes them feel the best, even though it's not the most effective. I just think it's human psychology. I think that our ability to think critically, which is a common theme on just about every single episode of The Art of Charm, the ability to think critically and realistically about what's actually working versus what feels good in the moment or is going to look cool, which it just goes back to feelings and ego, you're going to see a different trajectory for your business. And a lot of the mistakes that we've made, a lot of the stupid, wasteful investments that are, thankfully were not company-sinking investments, a lot of the ones that just ended up being idiotic, both time and money, always came down to, oh yeah, we wasted all this time with these morons because we thought they were gonna put us on TV. Oh yeah, we wasted a bunch of money for this social media manager that ended up just like, making us really well known for crap keywords that we don't even care about. And we have crap customers as a result that I just saw a company that did that, that they just optimized for easy keywords that would get them a ton of traffic. And they have a really popular website that's about jack shit. And so they can't do anything with it, but they look great on paper and they have lots of engagement. I mean, I even see these social media gurus with great quote unquote Facebook engagement and half the comments are like in Turkish and they're just, or people are posting spam. It's not high right. quality right. stuff. Once you pull down 
the curtain and you see the Wizard of Oz or whatever, it's just not that freaking impressive. So when someone comes to you and says, I've been working on my passion, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And I know you've gotten these emails. Oh, all the time. I've seen them all and I've heard you talk about them. So like, you know, I love making violins. I've been crafting the art of carving violins or whatever. I know nothing about that field, but there's a passion for you. And I love it, but I haven't made money at it. It's hard as hell. My parents hate me for doing it. They think I should have a traditional job. And I honestly don't know if I should keep going. Do you have an answer for that person? It often is very personal, but I'll say the overarching concepts here, I believe very strongly that your hobby does not have to be your career. That just flies in the face of a ton of this sort of conventional follow your passion, self-help wisdom. You mean like that idea of like, take your passion and then turn that into a turn job. Turn it into a job and do work you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Look, I love but the idea. But isn't that true? Isn't that what you did with Art of Charm? It, it is, definitely. And I think if you can do that, then go for it. The pressure to do that. The pressure to do that is completely unnecessary. It's just as bad as the pressure of following a traditional gig. Absolutely. So you can be doing a job that you kind of like for a corporation and you can have a great hobby and suddenly you can feel like a total failure because all these mofos on Instagram and Facebook are telling you that if you have a day job, you're some kind of loser. So you've got to do this thing as a, as a profession. But they don't tell anybody about how to get validation from the market, how to get external feedback and see if this is something that's feasible. So I see a lot of people go all in on their passion projects and they might even start making revenue, but then they're freaking miserable because they can't make ends meet and they think, but this is my passion. I can't quit because then I'm giving up on it. When really what they needed was a balance of what pays the bills and what they actually love doing all the time. What I see is very unfortunate is a lot of people will semi-successfully turn what they love into their job for a little while and then they just start to hate it because whenever anything becomes your job, you have to do it. There's other whole different set of factors come into play about what you can and cannot do. Oh, you like making violins that are for kids? great. Oh, but what if the market really is more for adult violins? Okay, well, you better make some of those. Oh, you know what? You you selling violins online? Well, that's great, man. You don't need a storefront. I'm I'm proud of you. You're making a thousand bucks a month. Oh, but now it's your job. So you better figure out how to do keyword SEO, search engine optimization for Google. You need to learn how to buy Facebook ads and retarget people so they buy stuff. You're going to spend more of your time doing that and yet feeling all the stress of a startup in order to make violins some of the time. When all you really loved was the violins. When all you really loved was the violins, and if had you kept your freaking day job, right? You could you, still love violins. You could still love violins. So the, the risk of, of turning your passion into your job is that you invite all this other stuff into this pure little space of your hobby. But the flip side of that is that if you do want to turn your passion into your job, like if you want to spend all day with violins or you want to start the art of charm, then you have to be willing to risk that. Like, I know what brought you into the art of charm was this desire to figure out what is the psychology that drives us? How do we influence people? How do we travel and learn? Like all these burning questions on your part. But if somebody had sat down and been like, yeah, and do you want to figure out how to do a budget for the following year? You want to build the financial model? You want to figure out how to plug the holes when expenses are through the roof because you're trying to answer these questions for other people? You might have been like, let me really think about that. So it's good to go into that eyes wide open. But isn't that just the price you pay or the risk you have to take if you're going to do that? I mean, in a way, you have to be willing to let 
your pure little hobby be tarnished a little bit the moment you make it your life's work. Exactly, you have to be willing to do that, and I think most people just don't understand what that means, or they think they're going to avoid it somehow because they read a book and they're like, I'm gonna outsource all that to India. Oh, I'm gonna hire an assistant. Oh, I'm gonna hire people to do my marketing for me. Yeah, to the extent that they're even thinking about it, yeah. And the truth is, it took us nine and a half years to find the right marketing team that we were willing to partner with that has so far hasn't screwed us over, right? Hasn't ended up driving our brand into the ground or into doing something bad. We've had all of these people that we tried to outsource things to screw with our brand, screw with our business partnership. We've had, I mean, there's been years where AJ and I had gained tons of weight, AJ, my business partner and the other co-host on the show often we've lost hair, we've lost friends, we've gained weight, like we've repaired all of that stuff, but we went through these insanely stressful times. And people often think, I'm willing to do that. There's some quote, like being an entrepreneur is living a few years of your life like most people won't, to live the rest of your life like most people can't. The truth is you have no freaking idea what those years are going to be like, and there's no guarantee of payoff. So you might think, I'm willing to live down and dirty. Well, you say that now because it sounds fun and it sounds like you're gonna be in the grind posting about being in the grind on Instagram and on Facebook, right? But really, the grind really can suck. It can suck. You know, I remember hiring people who then stole from me, who I thought were close friends, and they freaking lived with me. Uh, I hired people that drove my brand into the ground. I hired people that conspired to fire me from Art of Charm, my own company, that I later had to remove to great personal costs, financial costs, and the cost of part that I'll probably never get back of my sanity, right? And that stuff is really hard. So I'm not saying those people are naive and that they don't see it. I'm saying nobody knows what's in store. So it really comes down to personal traits like grit that most people like to think they have, but have no evidence for thinking that they have those traits. So given all that, I'm gonna ask you again. I know it's a hard question, but let's say you you get that email from that guy, the violin guy, and he went into this knowing that he was going to potentially risk his love for violins in turning it into a business. And now he's in the thick of it. And he's having some success. It's not that he's not going anywhere, but he is thinking, should I really stick with this thing or is it time to call it quits? I still love violins. It still could work, but it still could not. Should I give up on it? Do you have an answer or is that something that you, even as somebody who's thought for years about that question, still isn't really in a place to answer? I think I'm only in a part of a place to answer, right? And I don't think anybody can truly tell you. I mean, we've seen Shark Tank where they're like, don't do it, and then the person becomes successful, but we've also seen many more where they're like, don't do it, and the guy's like, I don't care, I'm gonna do it, and it's just a nightmare to see this guy throw his family and house away because he's focused on light up badges or something stupid like that. But I mean, you have to look at what's the market saying and also what are your responsibilities? You know, if you're 22 or 25 and you've got no responsibilities, right? You don't have a ton of debt. You're just cruising around. You're willing to sleep on the floor of the workshop because you're going to learn how to make handmade wooden furniture or violins, right? Keep doing it. Whatever, man. Are you having fun? Great. Do you have kids though? Do you have a wife? Is she supporting you while you make violins and make empty promises and post on social media? Weigh the cost of your relationship damage because that's something that you can't look to a meme when your wife says, look, man, I'm working my ass off and you're not bringing anything, get a day job. So what you're getting into then is that everybody's circumstances are different. So it's hard to give them an answer, but someone could still come with you and tell you their circumstances and still look to you to give them an answer on that question. So... I think if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, I think you're saying like, ultimately, people can give you perspectives. 
but ultimately nobody can really tell you for sure. Nobody. Once again, if that were a self-help article on Medium, nobody would want to hear it and nobody would share it because that's not something you can do anything with. It's nothing that you, your mind can get around and start to turn it into something useful. It's just like, oh, I'm the only person who can answer this question for myself ultimately. Like, I mean, I'm sort of assuming that the average person listening is in their right mind, they're sane, they're not crazy or delusional or whatever. But if you're a rational person, at a certain point, you have to be like, okay, I can take in whatever data I want from the market or customers or the people I trust and like. And then I can listen to my own inner voice about whether what I'm doing is worthwhile. But on the balance, nobody can ever really give you the answer. They just can't. They can't because you can't even possibly know. And nobody's yeah, even you can't. Exactly. Path. Right. Yeah. So, so in that case, that's it's almost impossible to not be kind of delusional if you're ever going to keep going forward with something. Right. There's always some sort of willful delusion that takes place. Totally. And I think a lot of it comes down to the ego, and it comes down to not wanting to do a day job or another job because the internet has made that into some kind of enemy, millennial enemy. But I'll tell you. If I had to do it all over again, I would not have gone to law school. I probably, knowing what I know now, I probably wouldn't have bothered with college either, to be quite frank, but I don't think that's great for everyone either. I would have tried to become the executive assistant to some badass, which would have been really hard for me, Mr. I can't even remember my keys three times coming out of the house because you have to be the opposite of that. But I think learning from people like that would have been... The apprentice the, model. The, the apprentice model would have been talk about getting a day job. Like, are you are you grinding it out just to pay the bills or do you feel like you're apprenticing? That's another thing with the day job. Like, if you're consulting and you're learning a ton about this industry that you think is great, aerospace, whatever, and then your dream is to work at for Elon Musk or something like that, you are on the right path. Don't dive out and start posting stuff online and selling how to get into the aerospace industry ebooks on the internet. No, you're doing the right thing. Stick with it. You're learning from people. This is good. If you're working at Best Buy selling CDs, you need to figure out whether or not you need that money. Usually, the answer is that you do. And I don't think anybody should quit their day job to do their business until the business is making them enough money to survive on. And also, and further, I think the only real time to quit is when you can't scale no matter what, unless you do, right? So what I mean by that is you're making X dollars, you're barely scraping by with that, but you have this day job that pays most of your bills and you're pretty tired. Well, do you need more time or are you going to spend that time getting social media followers or writing stuff that's gonna maybe market? That's not something that you should be doing. Hire that out with the money that you make during your day job. Then you can scale that. You can hire other people to help you. you. That's kind of what I didn't do because I got laid off, right? But had I been working on that law firm, what I would have done is try to hire out everything that I could for Art of Charm up and until they really just needed me, right? I just wanna be really clear here. You should be the last person to quit your job. You should hire out whatever else you can because then if anything goes up and down in your business or down anyway, you're fine. You have a day job. You're good. You can lay off some of the people that you've hired. You're not totally screwed. Is there any value in going all in on something the moment you decide that it's something you could see yourself doing all the time? I don't think so. And I think that that is what's romanticized online. It's just burn the ships, 
no plan B, you know, force yourself to go for plan A or bust. And I think that's a bad idea for most people. I think if you're 22 and you have no debt and you can live at your parents or your uncle's house and get back on your feet and you got a job waiting, if you fail, sure, go ahead. But if you're 30, 36, you've got a family, whatever, you've got bills, you got people counting on you, no, don't go all in. That's the equivalent of when you see good guys in some movie and they're cornered and they're like, all right, we're just gonna charge. And they run head on and the bullets are missing them and they manage to kill the enemy leader. And it's like, yeah, that's not real life, man. Right. But that's you going all in. But Why would you do that? But we know that it makes for great drama. So the story right. is what we want. But it's a smart way to think about how to build something without taking a risk you don't have to take. Mm -hmm. But we've, I think we just pretty much established that you can't give advice for everybody based on your own experience. That much is clear. It's but, hard, yeah. But I can tell you that there was a time where I was kind of moonlighting on my writing the same way you were moonlighting on AOC when you worked at the firm. And it was good. And I was so grateful to have jobs, writing jobs that would carry me through so that I could work for a few hours every night or at some point during the day on my own screenplays before I was really making that my full-time career. And there was a point about a year ago where I was like, what am I really trying to do here? Am I trying to be a writer who pays his bills by writing and then gets to toil for a few hours on the thing he really loves, which I'm not really getting to put all my energy and my love into because I have this other stuff? Or am I going to be this guy I want to be? Mm -hmm. And luckily, I was smart enough to like, you know, save a ton of money. So you prepared for it. So first. it's mitigating the risk, right? And also, you just proved my point by accident. Because you can't scale writing if you're the one doing the writing, if you have no time, mm -hmm. right? right? You can't hire a writer to write for you. If you're the one who needs to do right. it. Right. So the reason that I would have quit uh, working in my law job if we decided to scale the show up to what it is now, I would have needed all the time to do that. You would have had to. I would have had to. But if I was just the principal investor, which I was, and curating some online content for the company, I can do that in half an hour a day. And I can batch that in one day for the whole week. Right. I don't need to quit my day job to do that. Right. I would have wanted to. And so that's why it's such a tempting thing online when someone's like, go all in, don't be a pussy or whatever. You're like, yeah, this guy on YouTube told me I could go all in and I'm really doing it. It's just ego. Do you think that applies to business as well as creative pursuits? So you think that like a writer or a musician could follow the same rules that you're talking about right now? That it's not like when it comes to art or something creative, you need to be all in in order to make it work. No, I think you can piece by piece do that. And it doesn't mean you can't have a day job adjacent to what you want. I think now it's just people go, I want to be a rock star and play all my music all over the place. Well, okay, so are you saying you'd be unsatisfied if a hotel needed a cover band and you got to play music there, but it wasn't your songs? Would you be unhappy with that? Because that seems like a really good way to get really good at multiple instruments and try new things and make connections in an industry and pay the bills while you pursue this other thing. You don't need to quit playing in the house band so that you can jam in a metal band and make a record. You just don't. I'm sorry, you don't. And it's dangerous thinking to do that. And that's why you see a lot of people struggling much more than they really need to. That's interesting. I, I think it's it's so easy to think that when it comes to creative pursuits, the rules are different. But I think what you're saying is that you think they're not. Yeah, I don't. Look, I could be wrong on this, but I just, I think once we get rid of the element of shame for not going all in and we realize there's nothing wrong with having a job and we also realize that a lot of times you can have a job that is actually totally bringing you in the right direction towards what you might want to do later. What the heck, man? What's your problem? 
You don't have to have the immediate dream life that you think you want, that you don't even know about, Mr. Making Violins full-time, because of all the other things that are attendant to that. Why do you need that right now? Ego, 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 ego. It just comes back to that. It does. I was just talking with a young guy who quit his job as a server because he wanted to be a health coach. And I said, why did you quit? And he's like, yeah, I'm just not making any money, but I I just didn't like it. You know, I didn't want to be a server. And I said, why? And he said, well, because that's not what I want to do. So I started asking the important questions, which are, who thinks that you're going to succeed and who thinks you're going to fail at this? And what ended up coming out was he quit being a server, not because he needed the time to work on his business, but because his friends were saying, when are you going to give up that stupid stuff? You're just a waiter anyway. So by quitting and going all in, he could point to them and go, see, I'm doing this full time and giving it 100%. And that wasn't the right thing to do. He's struggling and he's miserable, right? He's hating every minute of it. But the reason he did it was so that he could show his friends how committed he was. Who the hell cares what they think? They're already naysaying you. That's another example of how so many of our reasons are just based on other people's reasons when you start to look into it. Do you feel as a coach, as a host of a self-help podcast, do you find yourself like asking people about their lives a lot? Like, do you find yourself getting curious about everyday encounters with people? Or do you feel like that's just taking work home with you and you can turn it off? I don't think I can turn it off. I do find myself even at like airport gates. When I see somebody that looks really together and I have an opportunity to chat with them, I often will because I'm just like, huh, what kind of 60-year-old guy do I want to be? And when I see some guy who's like fit, dressed sharply, seems very kind, calm, and charismatic, I'm like, what do you do? How long have you been doing it? What recommendations do you have? Because a lot of times those guys, these really sharp characters, they have really good insight where they can tell you something that's not just a cliche. And I sat down a couple of weeks ago with the CEO of Ogilvy, um, which is a, you know, the ad agency. And this guy is like freaking sharp. You know, he's writing a book. I don't know. He's probably in his 50s or maybe early 60s. I actually don't know. He wrote a book. It's really good. It's about careers. We did a show with him. And then he's also the CEO of this international famous company that just kills it. The modern day madmen type yeah, company. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And so I'm like, this dude gets it. He knows where the leverage points are. He knows how tons of places have failed. He knows how ideas that are good work, how he's seen a million bad ideas. There's a lot of wisdom here. And I want to talk with those people. I don't care if I'm tired, you know? Sure, sometimes I'm just too tired to do anything. But I'll tell you, no, I would jump at the chance to talk to people like that. Yeah, it seems like it's a part of your life. It's not just like the show and then there's the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Half the time I'm talking with people, I almost want to drop an immediate recording booth around us and mic us up instantly so I can turn this whole conversation into a show. Right. Right. Right, And it's crazy because I really have a passion for sharing this stuff because the insights that I get from people by asking the right questions are just life changing. But it's funny because I think when you're 60, I picture you at 60 doing the same thing with dudes who are 90. This mode of being a student that you're in is not a mode like it's part of your person. It's my it's my like something we share. Mm -hmm. And it's funny when I meet people who either aren't like that, which I guess I can understand because not everybody is equally curious. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting when you meet people who were like that and then something happens. Like, I remember thinking even when I was a kid, I don't think I could like articulate it the way I'm articulating it now, but I remember feeling like even when I was like eight or 10, talking to adults and just being like, why are they kind of dead? 
Like, you know, like at what point did they just kind of calcify and they were just like, this is who I am. I'm done learning. I'm done asking questions. This is just the way it is. You notice that like most people after a certain age do become like that if they're not willing to stay in that state of being a student. Yeah. And I wonder, is that a mindset or do you think that's conditioning? Like, what is it that lets people stay in a, in a state of like curiosity and wonder through old age? I actually don't know the answer to that question. I know that for me, I started learning Chinese when I was 32 or 33 or something like that. I think, right, just to challenge myself in that area, because apparently having enough sleepless nights from running Art of Charm with AJ and Johnny here wasn't enough for me. I like expanding my capability in every different area. I just recently started powerlifting for no reason other than it's kind of fun and cool and not super cardio intensive activity and seems to be working. I love learning new things like that. I started voiceover acting for video games and commercials because I already have a home studio. I just, and I'm taking classes, tons of classes for that. I'm always working on stuff like this. Always, always, always. And I don't know what that is. I think I was born with that because I've always been searching for esoteric knowledge ever since I was a kid. But I think that curiosity was just insanely turned up to 11 for me as a kid. And I just still have it. There's a willingness to have your ego be challenged if you're going to live a life like that. Mm -hmm. Like you got to be willing to struggle, to find things difficult, to step out of your comfort zone. And ultimately, I think to look silly. Like, yeah, I don't think when you started Chinese, you were like, okay, I want to learn Chinese and I want to be pretty good at it. But I am not willing to be the white guy with the weird American accent trying to nail these Mandarin tones. You were like, I'll probably sound like an idiot. But as long as I'm understood and I'm learning the language, then it's all worth it. So I wonder if that's part of it. And this totally connects back to the self-help thing we were talking about, where it's all egos tapping into egos. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you have to renounce it. Like, I don't think you need to be a Buddhist monk in order to learn new things. But you have to be willing to like have your pride hurt a little bit or to be uncomfortable mm -hmm. or to look silly if you're going to live a life that's interesting and fueled by curiosity. And I wonder if that's what keeps most people from doing it. Maybe, although I also have that whole fear of being silly. I mean, I don't practice Chinese that much, even with Jenny's family or with her, because it was like, oh, this is a lot of work. Oh, I don't know the word for this. Oh, I don't want to look stupid in front of people. So that's still there. It's still there. I think I just, I don't mind looking stupid in front of myself. Like, I'm totally fine telling my trainer that I wimped out on a workout and I don't have a good excuse. And I'm totally fine telling my Chinese teacher that I didn't do the homework and, uh, you know, making a crazy, terrible mistake in my own practice or, or whatever. And, I, and I've also got very good at calling myself out on excuses and rationalizations, which still strikes me as shocking that most people believe the voice in their head when the voice in your head is actually, this whole existence is predicated on bullshitting you. And keeping that sense of self. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. right. That voice in your head that says, it's okay to sleep in, you don't have to work out. Oh, you know what, it doesn't matter, you're married or whatever. That voice in your head is designed to protect itself. It's not there for you, man. Mm, it's not there to like make you better necessarily. No. Yeah. No, it's there to keep you comfortable. Yeah, keep you in the cave so you don't yeah. like wander out and get eaten by a lion. Exactly. Yeah. All it knows is preservation. It doesn't know what joy lies on the other side of that thing you were going to dare to do. It just knows that if you do it, you're going to sweat. No thanks. I think that explains why it was important for you when you were younger to be so naive. Because you were probably not aware of it, but I bet that naivete was what allowed you to step into that uncomfortable thing. When, Absolutely. You know, like, it's like, well, if you don't know how scary it's going to be and you don't know how much you might lose... And you don't know how silly you might look when you make mistakes, which you will yep. because you're trying something new for you. 
if you're not aware of those things, then it's a lot harder for the ego to start being like, don't do it or stay where you are or this isn't worth it. And I just wonder, it's almost like it really makes me curious if you can almost will yourself into that state of, of yeah. naivete just to get through it. I can't. And I'll tell you, whenever people go, oh, your business is thriving now. And we're like, well, yeah, we went through so much stuff earlier, blah, blah, blah. They'll say, well, it was worth it though, right? And I'm like, yes, but I don't think that right now I would be able to do it all over again, knowing what I know now about, sure, now I could start a business and it would hopefully take off a hell of a lot faster than this did. I mean, of course it would. Why would it not? I have the benefit of learning from my mistakes. But if someone was like, look, Jordan, we're gonna put you back 10 times, 100 times higher than you are right now, but you still have to go back and be broke and poor and sleeping on couches and have people steal from you and mix friendship and business and do all these other things for nine and a half years, grinding, grinding, grinding for the first six, seven, eight, whatever it was, on your way up to where we are now, where we're still, in my opinion, grinding and working. I would not sign up for the seven-year, six-year, whatever period. It was just, I don't have it in me anymore. Now that I know, because the naivete protected me from that. The naivete protected me from thinking like, well, what if this fails and we're all screwed, right? It was like, why would we fail? We're super smart. We got cool friends that are going to help us. You know, this is fun. We're not going to fail. That's what we were thinking at the time. That got us through it. But it wasn't because of that that we didn't fail. It was because of that we were able to trick ourselves into going through with it. But it wasn't because of that that we didn't fail. We didn't fail for all the other reasons we talked about earlier. You know, the hard work and going through it and testing the market and doing all that other stuff. And a lot of it was freaking luck. And I know that, and that's why I would never do it again. <laughs> You're speaking now as who you are now, knowing what you know, which exactly. is a weird position to be speaking from. But I guess at the end of the day, it's a good thing you didn't know all that stuff. It's, it is. You have to be willing to do it without knowing every horrible thing that's going to take. Exactly. Yeah. And so with episodes like this, we're not trying to break the naivete. We're trying to break the cycle of mistakes. But if you've got that naivete and that delusional confidence and you're 23 or five and you have no freaking responsibilities, now is the time. Well, just before we wrap up, I mean, I guess the last question then is, what is the line then between delusion and just pure grit and willingness to keep going? I don't know if there is a line. I think those things go hand in hand. I think there's people that are delusionally confident and fail because they don't have grit, and there are people that are delusionally confident and they have enough grit to withstand the crap that happens when your delusion crumbles. So you think delusion is part of it? I think it's part of it, but I think without grit, you're totally screwed. So delusion is not seeing a brick wall ahead of you. It's, it's driving blindfolded, right? And grit is making sure that you can survive whatever you crash into. Or climb it or whatever. Or climb it, right? Yeah. It, but you won't know if you have grit until you test it, right? right? So what we see is a lot of delusional people that don't have the grit to withstand and they quit. But what I also see are a lot of people that think they have that grit on, and they're delusional and they view that as an asset, but instead of testing their grit, they go, I'm just gonna post this meme or I'm just gonna write something on Medium instead of creating something real. Which is dangerous because that can give you the impression that, oh yeah, no, I do have grit. And I'm, this is working. I'm still going, it's still, it is working, exactly. exactly. That's why those people don't create things that matter. And that's why the world, I think, is set up to some degree to hold up a mirror to you in ways that might not always be helpful. Exactly. So it's just interesting. I mean, I guess that's where that inner voice comes back in. It is indeed. And that's all I got, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, this was fun. I think you had me on my show here. I totally did, but that was good. Yeah.
Great big thank you to my man, Gabriel Mizrahi. He really did a great job on this, kind of almost an accidental decent episode out of this one. And if you enjoyed this one, you can get a hold of me. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter, or more importantly, perhaps, you can get a hold of my friend Gabriel Mizrahi. We'll have his Twitter linked in the show notes as well. And if you're listening on your phone, you can probably just tap your screen when the phone's unlocked, and you should see those show notes right there. Boot camps are live programs. Those are at bootcamp.theartofcharm.com, the information anyway. I really love doing these programs. The team loves doing these programs. They're phenomenal. The growth we see is just, it's unbelievable. I really, really love it. It keeps us in the game sometimes. We do them every week, but we do sell out a few months in advance. So if you're thinking about it or we got your curiosity peaked, you can give us a call. Our phone number, of course, you can go on the website, talk to the gals there in the live chat, or you can just email me. I'm jordan at theartofcharm.com. Happy to point you in the right direction. I'd also like to encourage you to join us in the AOC Challenge. That's at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or if you're located here in the States, you can text the word charmed to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. The challenge is about improving your connection skills and your networking skills and inspiring people to develop relationships, both personal and professional, with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox. That's what I mentioned earlier on the show. I also do regular videos with drills and exercises, very practical stuff to help you move forward. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or you can text charmed here in the States to 33444. For the full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson, he's our audio engineer and editor responsible for this buttery smooth voice you got here. Show notes on the website, those are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or just share it on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 